Mr. Bullock, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to be with you. Now, I'd like to begin by talking about IJ. What is your role at IJ? What's its purpose? Tell me a bit about what IJ is. Sure. Well, I, I, the Institute for Justice is a public interest nonprofit law firm. And our mission really is to uh, protect essential constitutional liberties when those liberties are violated by the government. And that could be the federal government, a state government, or local governments uh, then as well. Uh, I'm president and chief counsel of IJ, and I've actually spent my whole career uh, here. I started off as an attorney when we were a startup in 1991, and I served as a senior attorney and litigated a number of cases, and I had the fortune of, in 2016, becoming IJ's second uh, president, and I've, I've had that role since then. Now, constitutional lawyers typically focus on, you know, what I would call the sexy parts of constitutional jurisprudence, right? Self-incrimination, free speech, and all of those are obviously very important. But I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, eminent domain kind of flies under the radar. And I think it's a shame because I think it's, it's one of the more important constitutional doctrines out there. Tell me what eminent domain is. Sure. Well, I, you know, I'll just step back one moment, talk about it. I think that, you know, a lot of anything involving constitutional law is kind of the sexy issue in the law. It's one of the reasons why people go to law school. They really love to talk about this and the concepts behind constitutional law. Uh, unfortunately, for a lot of law students, only a small percentage of people can actually do that as their career. And thankfully, at the Institute for Justice, we do that every single day. We have over 100 cases. We represent hundreds of individuals in their, in their fight. And what we're trying to do in each of these instances is to better protect the rights of our clients and in so doing set a precedent that will better protect the rights of all Americans. So we do that in all of the areas. And the four areas that, um, that we primarily focus on are economic liberty, property rights, free speech, and educational choice. And you're right, those are things that are kind of neglected in some ways, maybe not talked about in, 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 um, in some quarters about the, the of, 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 cons of talking about constitutional cases, but they're essential freedoms, you know, the right to pursue a lawful calling, an occupation of your choice, to own and use property, to speak your mind about commercial and political matters, and to educate your kids as you see fit. Those form the core of the American dream. And, and those are rights that are essential, but have been woefully underprotected by the courts. And that is something that was true in an area that I litigated for a number of years, and now IJ is still involved in, eminent domain, um, which is one of the most significant powers the government has at its disposal to take away your home, your business, uh, your land, um, it's apart from putting you in jail and maybe executing you, that's about the most serious thing a government can do. So the Constitution was designed to limit that power. Um, the government can do it in certain instances, but there's two requirements. If they take your land, they first have to pay you for it. Um, that's where the just compensation of the takings clause comes in. But they can only take it in the first instance if it is for a public use. Uh, now, traditionally, that meant a road, a bridge, a military base, what most people would consider to be public uses. But in the 1990s and through 2000s, governments increasingly used this to take land from one private owner 
to hand over to another private owner in the name of economic development. We think that that was a gross misuse of eminent domain power, and we set out to change that. Now, this, like many uh, laws and doctrines, constitutional precedents, vary state by state. How does this vary state by state? Yeah, so each state has its own statutes governing uh, eminent domain. Uh, but the Constitution, of course, is, uh, is is designed to limit government power uh, throughout the country. And there's certain minimal standards that every government, no matter where they might uh, be, has to meet. And so, um, so yes, certain states um, approach this in different ways. But what we were trying to do in the eminent domain context is to say that eminent domain should not be abused for private purposes. And that was a standard that, that we wanted to establish. The Supreme Court refused to do that in a case called the, the Kelo case that we got up before the Supreme Court. But you know, one of the things that we do as a public interest organization is we don't just argue cases in courts of law. We argue them in the court of public opinion and try to sway um, the public to better understand these concepts. And if the courts don't do the right thing, to be able to do something about it uh, then too. And so after the Kelo decision was handed down, we persuaded over 40 states, now the current count is 47 states, to better protect property owners because the Supreme Court did not do that under the Fifth Amendment of the Takings Clause. Now, how did the public use function evolve over time, as you mentioned? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, that's what the Constitution says, or shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation? And there's been disputes about this for a number of years, but for the most part, um, for governments understood that to mean public uses were things that were owned by the public, like a public building, a courthouse, a, um, a road, uh, or things that everybody had the right to use, utility lines, railroads. These are oftentimes called common carriers under the law. But starting basically in the 1940s and 1950s, um, governments started using this and expanding the use of, of eminent domain to say, well, yes, the Constitution says public use, but let's have a broad reading of that. And why don't we say it means public purpose? And then eventually that was expanded to say public benefit. And so the argument then to justify the use of eminent domain to take land from one private owner and give it over to another private owner was, well, the public is going to benefit from these new development projects. A big box retail store is going to create more public benefits in, in the form of tax revenues and jobs than a modest neighborhood of, of working class homes. So it was gradually done the way a lot of encroachments on, on, on liberty are done. And then it become, became the rule that this could have this very broad interpretation of the public use requirement, and that then the public use requirement was essentially read out of the Constitution. You know, just compensation is one of those phrases that is like many phrases in the law, it means nothing. How has that phrase evolved over time? How has that phrase um, been expanded as the years have gone on? Yeah, so just compensation is uh, one of those phrases that um, I think is a little bit even more malleable than, than public use. I mean, public use had the benefit, even though the Supreme Court ignored it, of having a pretty good understanding of what that meant. Most people kind of say like, okay, yeah, that probably means things that are publicly owned or again, that people have the right to use as a member of the public. 
that's a lot more specific than some broader concepts in, in the Constitution, like due process and equal protection and things like that, that people, of course, argue about to this day as to what those, what those limits are. But in just compensation, and this is yet another kind of um, uh, injustice in the eminent domain process, that has been, has been interpreted to mean just the appraised value of your property. So when the government takes your land, they will look at, well, this is a single family, uh, uh, single family neighborhood. This is a single family home. So therefore, you will get what the appraised value of the property is. And we can have an argument about what that might be. You hire an appraiser, I'll hire an appraiser, and then we'll kind of reach a number somewhere in the middle. But that's a lot different than a market transaction where somebody comes to you and says, Demetri, I want to buy your house. They, well, I kind of like my house. And, you know, I'm, well, I'll give you the appraised value for it. Nope, I'm not going to do that because, you know, it takes a lot for me to move and, you know, I, I have to find another neighborhood. And by the way, the interest rates now are, you know, incredibly high. I don't want to do that. Say, so, well, how about if I give you twice the value? Oh, well, how about two and a half? To, you know, it's a, it's a negotiation because there's a lot of other things that go into that um, and, it, and, and it to get you to get to a point where you might want to move. In eminent domain, you don't ever have to get to that point. The government does it, and all you get is the appraised value of the property. And typically what happens when these projects have, were done is that the land is rezoned commercial, and then the value of the property skyrockets. And the, and the, and the new owner of the property gets all of that increase in value rather than the previous owner who simply gets the appraised value of, of the property. Now, in, in her dissent, in Kilo, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who just left us a few days ago, um, had compared this decision to the government being able to effectively take your Motel 6 and turn into Ritz-Carlton. Too dramatic? No, not at all. I mean, that was that was the theme of our argument in the case, is that that was what we said. If, if you sign off on this, then there really are no limits to the domain power. Because everybody can come up with a more productive use of your land than what you are making up for it. And every home would be more, uh, would produce more tax revenue if it were a business. It would certainly produce more jobs if it were a business, even if it were just one or two. So this really is a vision of eminent domain without any sort of limitations. And so, so, uh, Justice O'Connor and her stirring dissent in Kela, one of the last opinions that she wrote on the Supreme Court before she uh, before she stepped down was exactly right in, in how she described this. And I think also she uh, had this view of how these projects typically played out too, because she was a former state legislator. And if you read the majority opinion in Kilo, you know, the, the court is very kind of impressed with the planning process that New London went through and they had all these approvals and they got, you know, uh, every step of the way they kind of signed off on this. And, and this was kind of impressive to the majority. And Justice O'Connor thought, I know how these deals are done. Like the, the, the big players in town in New London, it was Pfizer that wanted to build a plant there and the, the New London got them to do this. And they got everything that they wanted in the development plan. And yes, they went through the whole kind of dog and pony show of doing this. But at the end of the day, the big players, the, the people with the most money in town got what they wanted. And I think she understood that having seen how these deals are done in, in the legislative halls of Arizona. 
and we're we're here in New York, and your website indicates that New York has some of the worst eminent domain laws. Why? Yes. Well, I, it, it's one of those things where, in the wake of Kilo, when the Supreme Court changed, uh, uh, did not uh, um, uh, agree with us, and they upheld the use of eminent domain for private uh, development, states finally stepped up and said, well, we've got to do something about this. And the public was outraged enough about this. It was one of the most despised Supreme Court decisions in decades that most states changed their laws in some way to better protect property owners. But New York did not do that. And, and it's something that you know, New York has, uh, has always been a terrible abuser of, of eminent domain. State agencies have done this. Uh, cities have also abused the power of eminent domain. And so in New York refused to change it. The New York Court of Appeals did not uh, interpret its own state constitution in a way that would better protect property owners the way that several state Supreme Courts did. And I think that's an important point is that state Supreme Courts are, are allowed to get uh, recognize greater protections for their own citizens under their state constitutions. New York refused to do that. But the good thing is, is that this is such a wildly unpopular power to be exercised that it's actually scared off a lot of developers and, and government officials from abusing it. So it still happens, but it's not nearly at the level as, as it once was in the 90s and 2000s. I'd like to talk a bit about forfeiture. Now, yeah. most people look at forfeiture, which most people think means, well, if the government thinks you did something wrong and got some money from that, they could take it away. Yeah. Um, now, there's a distinction between civil forfeiture and criminal forfeiture. Why is it so dangerous to allow the government to take away what you got without a criminal charge? Yeah, so it's a great question. It's another area that we've been litigating and trying to change for a number of years. We did with eminent domain abuse, and 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 we've really focused on civil forfeiture, especially after um, our big fight on on uh, changing eminent domain. And you're right, Dimitri. This is a power that, like, in a, most people get if you're talking about criminal. You know, you don't want people to benefit from their criminal activity. And so this is something where it's tied to the criminal conviction of somebody or somebody pleading guilty. Like Bernie Madoff is a classic example of that. He defrauded all of his investors. He pled guilty to this. And you don't want his, he or his family to keep the yachts, the penthouse that they bought with the defrauded funds. It was forfeited, and 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 it's at least a portion of it went back to the victims of the crime. But that's very different than civil forfeiture, which is unrelated to a criminal conviction. And under civil forfeiture, the government can take your property without convicting or even charging you with a crime. And that's something, it's kind of like with eminent domain, where I talk to people who are not lawyers or haven't looked at this, and they say, well, how, how can that happen? You know, how can the government take your home and give it to Costco? Or how can the government take your property without convicting or even charging you with a crime? And that's when you have to explain to them this upside down world of civil forfeiture, where the property is the defendant in the action. And then it's if the property was used to facilitate criminal activity, then it can be forfeited. So that's why it's civil forfeiture uh, ha cases have these crazy names, like a case we had in Texas, state of Texas versus one 2008 Chevrolet Silverado, or a case we had in Massachusetts, United States versus 434 Main Street, Tewksbury, Massachusetts. 
These are actions against the property, and they are civil in nature. So therefore, the government does not have to go through the usual burdens that you do in a criminal case of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But the thing that drives civil forfeiture and why it's this multi-billion dollar industry is because law enforcement gets to keep everything that they forfeit for their own use. And this is a classic example of perverse incentives at work. You give people the wrong incentives and every economist will tell you you are going to get wrong, bad results as, as, a, as a piece of that. And that's what happened in civil forfeiture starting in the 1980s. Forfeiture revenue was directed away from the general fund of the government and given directly back to the very agencies that were out there prosecuting the offenses. And so therefore, civil forfeiture revenue skyrocketed and it's been going up ever since. Now, the question will naturally arise. Somebody may have done something wrong, but that may not rise to criminal culpability. That being said, that person who did something wrong should still have to answer. What's your response to that? Sure. And, and that's what we have the criminal justice system for. And, 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 you know, not only would the person have to answer, because then you are charged individually with criminal activity, but then if you were found guilty or plead guilty for it, then your property can be taken as a result of that. But civil forfeiture, those considerations go out the window. And what you really see is government looking for revenue. And so this is a big issue in several places with people's cars. Um, but the big focus um, in civil forfeiture right now is on seizing cash. Cash has become kind of like uh, in, in the minds of many law enforcement agencies as just if you're carrying what they consider to be a suspiciously large amount of cash, that's enough to seize it uh, from you. And that is something you see over and over again in airports and on the roadways. You have um, kind of shakedowns uh, by agencies looking for kind of easy money that then they keep for their own agency's uh, benefit. And so you oftentimes will have people get pulled aside at an airport, have uh, uh, cash that you know may in fact be connected to, to criminal activity, but there's a lot of legitimate reasons for carrying cash. They don't find any evidence of criminal wrongdoing, but they still keep the money and say, you are free to go, but your money's staying with us and we're going to seize it and then file a civil forfeiture action against it. And some cases are actually United States versus $8,400 in US currency. And that is just wrong and should not exist in a country that respects the constitution. You know, corruption is a loud word that's thrown around often, but it seems like there's a connection to be made between the dangers in what you're saying and corruptive efforts by government officials, authorities, agencies, and the like. Yeah, it's one of these things where, I mean, their argument, and it's true in a lot of ways, is that the law authorizes this. So, you know, corruption is typically, you know, the law says one thing, but hey, you know, it's, the law bans bribery, but you're still accepting bribes. The problem with civil forfeiture, it's not necessarily bad police officers or bad law enforcement agencies. It's the law allows this, and then you pervert the incentives that are at play uh, with it. And of course, people are going to go for the low-hanging fruit and things that are going to benefit you and your agency. That's just a natural human inclination of saying, well, you know, I could like um, go on the side of the road and pull people over and ask them, you know, why, what's going on? 
And, and any question that, you know, is commonly asked now when you're pulled over, especially if maybe if you are, are under suspicion or meet a certain profile is, are you carrying any large amounts of cash on you? That's a question that's routinely asked along with, you know, driver's license, registration, insurance, and that sort of thing. And that's what happens when the law allows this. It's, you know, well, let's go out and try to get something that's going to benefit our agency rather than, for instance, go crack open the cold case file, which is difficult, unglamorous, probably isn't going to lead anywhere. And so naturally, again, it goes back to incentives and giving people the wrong incentives. And the law is allowing this. And that's really where the dangers lie with civil forfeiture. I'd like to transition and talk a bit about school choice. Can you talk to me about the primary issue that arose in Carson versus Macon? Sure. I mean, school choice is another issue that we've that we've litigated for a number of years. And the idea behind the choice is to allow parents and families to choose the education that best meets the needs of, of, of their kids. And this is an idea that was first developed by Milton Friedman back in the 1950s. And so it's a way of injecting competition into the public school system, which is frankly in, in, in desperate need of it in, in, in many places, and allowing parents who oftentimes, especially if the kids do not go to a very good public school and don't have the means to move to a better school district to have greater say uh, over the education of their kids. And so we, and Carson was the most recent example of this, have been trying to systematically establish the constitutionality of, of, of choice. And that's what we've done over, now over the past 30 years and have made really enormous progress uh, in that regard. And the biggest uh, opponent of choice is public school teachers unions. They have been opposing school choice for a number of years, and we have uh, been establishing the constitutionality of this. What Carson goes to in a, in a case a case that we did earlier in, in 2000s um, out of Ohio have um, addressed this issue of if you have a school choice program and you use it at a religious school, you choose to, as a religious school as a part of the program, does that violate the establishment clause? Um, in this earlier case, and then Carson was about whether these, um, and this is kind of a longer discussion, but these state Blaine amendments that exist in over 30 state constitutions can be used to exclude religious options as part of an overall school choice program. And the court in Carson said that Blaine amendments under state constitutions cannot be used in this way, and that as so long as parents make the choice, and, and, the, and the program includes both religious, non-religious, secular, public, uh, uh, private options, then it's not a violation of the Constitution for parents to choose those, those uh, options for their kids. Let's talk a bit about free speech. Now, FIRE, the Foundation uh, for Individual Rights and Expression, on its website, knows that IJ isn't a traditional First Amendment public law firm, let's say. Why does it say that? Well, I mean, FIRE, we're friends with people at FIRE, their uh, litigation directors, a former IJ, and, you know, very much support the work that, that, that they're doing. And our work on free speech is kind of targeted in certain areas um, that are kind of un, uh, underrepresented in the free speech fight, because free speech can involve a number of different uh, components uh, to it. And we don't want to kind of do work that other groups are, are, are doing. And so we've focused a lot of our efforts um, in, in a couple areas, one being defending commercial speech, 
um, the ability of, of, of small businesses in particular to talk about their their um, their products um, to to advertise with this and commercial speech for a number of years was given less protection under the Constitution and it's still not given as robust of protection as political speech and we just think that that's wrong. I mean, the, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law bridging freedom of speech. It doesn't say except for commercial speech or except for these other categories of speech uh, with it. So we've we focused our efforts on that. And then we've also uh, been focused in, a, in an area that's um, also really the law is developing, and that is occupational speech, too. I mean, we've been trying to break down barriers to people working, challenging a lot of ridiculous licensing laws that are not about protecting public health and safety, but about protecting established industry insiders. And a lot of people today speak for a living. This is what they do. And that is oftentimes clashes with government licensing laws that say, well, you need a license in order to uh, do this. And our argument is, but but we have free speech rights and we ought to be able to uh, uh, to do this regardless. And so that's been the focus of our free speech work for the past several years. And we've been really developing the law in this area of occupational speech. Do you get the sense that the public's understanding of free speech and the First Amendment has differed over the past several years and decades, perhaps, over things like hate speech and other concepts that perhaps are protected in the law, but the public deems unprotected or deems shouldn't be protected in some ways. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of misunderstanding of, uh, about this as to what free speech is, where it should be applied. Um, and and you know this is this is a, an understanding that's that's important and it touches on a number of different parts of our parts of our society. I think there has been um, less of, uh, unfortunately, uh, among at least certain members of the public, a support for free speech rights. And and you know the classic example is free speech for for me, but not for thee. And people have a hard time, uh, you know, kind of distinguishing that if they like the speech, they're all in, in favor of robust free speech protections that they don't like it, then they kind of make up excuses to why it should not be protected. We're pretty strong First Amendment absolutists and really want this to be protected. But there's also some misunderstanding about what constitutes censorship, though, too, because a lot of times people say, well, I'm being censored. It's like, well, but only really the government can censor you. Um, it, and the First Amendment only applies to the government. It, that's why it says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. It doesn't say um, uh, Google shall shall not abridge your freedom of speech or YouTube should not abridge your freedom of speech. And this is where, as kind of a free market advocate, I have great concerns where people say that, well, we ought to have free speech rights vis-a-vis -vis private businesses or private institutions. And that, I think, can set a very dangerous precedent where then people are kind of determining what people are doing on their own property and on on their own platforms. And the um, anytime speech is restricted either by government or by a private party, the answer to that is more speech and more robust platforms for doing this. And as so long as the government is not interfering with your free speech rights, then I think you should you should work using persuasion and the private sector rather than kind of claiming that you're being censored. State action uh, has been discussed over the past several years, particularly with the rise of social media platforms and their enormous reach. 
um, as under-inclusive, meaning other things, private entities should be included in that doctrine or the extensions of that doctrine. I presume you, like me, feel that'll never happen. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I think it is, like I said, I think it's a dangerous precedent to say, well, these these entities are kind of quasi-public then, and we're going to demand a right of access uh, for it. Because, um, you know, certain people that say they're rest restricting too much speech, other people are saying, well, they're not res restricting speech enough. And as long as you're saying, well, we have the ability to then regulate these private platforms, then it just depends on who's in power uh, for it. So better to say, like, it's up to them. Maybe they'll make the wrong calls, the right calls with it. But the way you do that is as long as you still have the right to speak in some forum. And this is an area where, yes, I know these platforms have a lot of influence and they're, they're strong entities, but the tech world is one where it's constantly changing. And businesses that were big, you know, even five or seven years ago are you know, not only are they not not as powerful as they once were, they're not even around anymore, like Netscape or AOL or other groups like this. And so this is an area, it's not like a huge utility company or something like that, where it's kind of hard to get into the marketplace. There's a lot of different outlets that people have uh, for this. And that the answer is not to kind of regulate the existing platform. What constitutional issues do you think will be most controversially dealt with, let's say, in the next several years by the Supreme Court and the general public here in the United States? Yeah, I mean, there, there's going to a lot of them, of course, are are, are, are rising up to, uh, to the fore. I think um, one of them, of course, is, uh, you know, the increasing uh, criminalization of behavior in, in the country that, uh, you know, the, there was a famous book, as I'm sure you know, called Three Felonies a Day, uh, where, um, you know, if if the government wants to target you for something, there's probably a law in the books that you're violating somewhere. And this is something that is um, is is a really important thing for to be to uh, to be examined by the courts too. We actually have a case up before the Supreme Court this year uh, called the Gonzalez case that deals with this issue of um, of retaliation um, by government officials against uh, against a, 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 our client in the case um, and whether the officials are immune from a lawsuit uh, for it. And and kind of the, the issue without getting into the, all the details of it is the government's argument is, well, we had probable cause to arrest this person. And so if you had probable cause, there's no more inquiry into whether this was truly retaliatory or whether they were direct, directed uh, toward doing this because of this wo woman's exercise of her free speech rights. And so I think that is something that what we need to have are judges engaged on these issues, willing to look at evidence of this and to ferret out abuse of it. And so I think that is going to be a major constitutional issue and one that we've been litigating you probably know these immunity doctrines that make it very difficult to hold government officials accountable, even for egregious abuses of, of, of power. And so that's one that we're, I, I think, is going to continue to um, uh, continue to be controversial, very important, and one that we're we're determined to try to break down these immunity doctrines in order to instill greater accountability in government officials. Mr. Bullitt, I appreciate your time and your effort. Thank you so much for giving us some insight as to this important work that IJ does. Thank you so much, Dimitri. It was a real pleasure being with you.